0: We've been heavily engaged in that process and are really excited about this announcement because we think it can help to not only raise our own ambition and kind of step the bar up for ourselves, but also help to inspire others, both the regulators as well as other folks in the industry to come with us and to say, we need to do more, we need to do better, and let's work together to make electrification happen.
1: Lyft is going 100% electric. The rideshare company just announced it will transition all the vehicles on its platform to EVs by 2030. But this decision isn't as simple as buying some new cars. It will require building out an entire ecosystem of EV infrastructure and incentives and getting into the weeds on policy. We speak to Lyft's Sustainability Director Sam Ahrens about this new strategy on this episode of Political Climate a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. In a moment, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Brandon is a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. He's currently a partner at Boundary Stone Partners. And Shane Skelton is a Republican, he is a partner at S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. As I mentioned in the intro, this week we are also joined by Sam Ahrens, who heads up sustainability at Lyft. Lyft just made big news in announcing a pledge to reach 100% electric vehicles on its platform in just a decade. The political climate crew first met Sam a couple years ago when we were all in Sun Valley, Idaho for the Sun Valley Forum. And at that time, he talked about how the ride-sharing company was offsetting its emissions with carbon credits. Now the company is taking a more direct role in reducing its environmental footprint. It's a move that seeks to get out ahead of new emissions regulations under development in California. It also speaks to pressure that companies are facing in an era of close public scrutiny and, and, and rising social movements. And it's about pressuring partners and competitors to also make transformational change. In this interview, we had a chance to talk to Sam about the EV target and how to meet it, as well as related policies and how electric rideshare vehicles can support the electric grid. We also talked a lot about the broader transportation ecosystem, the future of cities and Lyft's evolving role as a multimodal technology platform, as Sam put it. While you're listening to this conversation, we'd love it if you could take a moment to rate and review Political Climate on Apple Podcasts. Your five-star reviews really help us grow and bring this content to wider audiences. And a big thanks to everyone who's reviewed so far. Now, on with the show. So Sam, we know that you have some big news this week. In fact, the news just broke that Lyft is making a big EV announcement. So to kick us off here, tell us what that's all about.
0: That's right. Yes, we're very excited to be announcing that we are stepping up and making a new commitment to 100% electric vehicles on our platform by 2030. And with this announcement, we are taking a big step forward, leading our industry and helping to meet uh, the climate challenge that faces all of us.
1: So, what exactly does this mean? So, you guys have a network of drivers who drive for Lyft. So, how will you be transitioning uh, their fleet in addition to the ones that you guys also own? What will this look like, basically?
0: That's right. There are a couple different ways that cars come onto the Lyft platform. So, many, most, in fact, come from drivers who bring their own car. And there are some other cars that come through our rental program, uh, which is called Express Drive. And we need to work on both of these segments. Um, The rental cars are a little bit easier to start with because we can uh, help to make EVs available through that program a little bit sooner. And in fact, we've already begun that work last year when we launched EVs through the rental program in Seattle, Atlanta, and then in Denver. So, there are now already a few hundred EVs that are being offered through that program, and drivers are uh, already saving somewhere between $50 and $70 per week on fuel costs because of the EVs that they're driving and the charging that's provided through the program. And then we have the rest of the drivers who are bringing their own car to the platform, and there the idea is that we need to work do a lot of hard work over the next Next ten years to make EV driving so compelling that all all of these drivers are basically jumping out of their chair at the opportunity to drive an EV because we want to use our ability to uh, help to connect them with EV incentives that either already exist or that we hope to help bring about with policymakers. We want to connect them with auto manufacturers, and we hope to be able to you know negotiate uh, to help continue to bring the cost of EVs down. We want to connect them with charging providers to help to make charging for them reliable, affordable, ubiquitous, and convenient. So if we can do all those things, and it's going to, it's, don't get me wrong, it's going to be a lot of hard work to do that. But if we can do all those things, we think we're going to get to the point, um, probably somewhere around mid-decade, as the battery cost curve keeps coming down, where it's going to be so compelling that drivers will want to do this, and we can help everybody Uh, to switch to an EV and have a better experience and have more net earnings than they would if they had continued to drive a gasoline vehicle.
1: I think that's what's so interesting about this announcement is that that piece especially speaks to a broader ecosystem shift and a broader change, which will require input from policymakers, I think automakers, yourselves, drivers, consumers. So it's really interesting that you guys are taking that on. And we want to dig into that a little bit more. Uh, first, I just wanted to tackle uh, the carbon neutral offsets program you had. Discuss what happens to that amid the announcement and mid this shift to 100% EVs by 2030.
0: That's a great question. So taking a step back and kind of thinking about the climate situation more broadly, you know, today, transportation is the largest source of emissions of greenhouse gas emissions that there is, at least in the United States. And so if we collectively want to solve the climate crisis, we've got to solve the transportation emissions problem. And almost by definition, There is nothing that can offset the transportation emissions because it is the biggest source of emissions. So what that means is, you know, we could continue to purchase carbon offsets indefinitely. And in a way that would neutralize our own, you know, emissions or or the emissions that are coming from our platform. But that would, in a way, that would be sort of the easy thing to do. And we don't want to do the easy thing. We want to do the hard thing. And we know that doing the hard thing, which is to actually work to help drivers electrify and to actually drive down those emissions through the vehicles that are being driven can catalyze the change that you're talking about throughout this whole ecosystem and help to make this not only something that works for people who are driving on a lift platform, but also helps to create a virtuous cycle where everybody can benefit and all drivers and eventually all of transportation can electrify and drive those emissions down to help solve a climate issue.
2: Hey, Sam. This is Brandon. Uh, congrats on the announcement. I'm a uh, avid Lyft user now. I'm even more proud of that today. I don't even uh,
1: own a car because of ride share. <laughs> Like,
2: <laughs> I'm wondering, um, what are some of the policies that you think you will need to execute on this um, ambitious goal of, you know, all EVs by 2030. And there's a lot happening on Capitol Hill right now. Uh, There's some activity around the surface transportation uh, bill and infrastructure conversations. Will you be engaged in those conversations right away, trying to push some of your policy changes?
0: Yeah, we do hope to engage in, in a very deep and meaningful way with policymakers at all levels. Uh, of, of government ranging from federally to states to even city and, and regional and local governments. We had a really great example last year where in Colorado, we were able to work with uh, Governor Polis and uh, members of the state legislature and the energy office there to modify the policy or the, really the law uh, around the state's electric vehicle tax credit, and make it available to rideshare rental fleets, and so the result of that was that that basically unlocked our ability to go ahead and launch electric vehicles in Colorado. So it was a really great example of the private sector, the government, you know, public sector coming together. And saying, hey, you know, we we recognize there's a problem here with these transportation-related emissions. Let's work together to do something about it. And we actually were able to change the law, and boom, within you know several months, we were able to roll out the largest EV deployment we think in North America, um, at least as it relates to to rideshare rental fleets. And you know that program is now up and running today. So we hope to be able to uh, use that as inspiration and replicate that with other policymakers around the country and also continue to, you know, weigh in as legislation is being considered at all levels to say, you know, how do we work together to solve these problems?
1: So as the journalist on the podcast here, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't point out some of the early reporting we've Wait, seen. Shane's
0: not a journalist.
1: No, shocker. <laughs> uh,
2: fake
3: news. Fake, fake news. news.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I was going to say is, um, you know, we've seen some reporting uh, that, California lawmakers and regulators in particular have been looking at, you know, this shift to EVs for ride share companies as a way of tackling greenhouse gas emissions. And I know you guys are thinking about this deeply, Sam, as you just described, but for our audience, just some context that the California Air Resources Board is currently crafting new emissions regulations for ride hailing companies, and they could be presented by the end of this year and take effect, I believe, in the 2023 time frame. A 2018 CARB study found that rideshare vehicles produce about 50% more emissions than the average passenger car in the state on a per passenger mile traveled basis. These additional emissions stem primarily from deadhead miles, or the miles that are driven by the driver on their own in between picking up and dropping off passengers. Rideshare drivers also spend more time idling in between trips. This same study by the Air Resources Board found that transportation networks such as Uber and Lyft produce about 1% of California's greenhouse gas emissions for the light duty sector. And for context, the light duty sector makes up around 30% of California's total greenhouse gas emissions. So, rideshare service companies are not the biggest polluters, but they do have a footprint. And there's a concern that these emissions will continue to increase over time as ridesharing becomes even more popular. Now, COVID 19 has changed commuting habits and caused rideshare to decrease in recent months and weeks, but we're already starting to see that activity pick back up. Separately, a study by the Union of Concerned Scientists pointed out that ride sharing also has the potential to take ridership away from public transit by keeping people in cars. So, as a result, California is currently working on what I understand are the world's first regulations to reduce the climate impacts of ride hailing. And so, Sam, with that long wind-up, I want to ask you, what do you make of this policy push here in California, and how does it align with what you are trying to achieve?
0: You know, honestly, we think that's great. Um, And we've actually been very engaged with the California Air Resources Board uh, as it has been working through its regulatory development process on something called SB 1014, uh, Senate Bill 1014, which is a law uh, that was authored by um, Senator Nancy Skinner in 2018, which requires the board to come up with greenhouse gas reduction targets and electrification targets for the ride-sharing industry. So we've been um, heavily engaged in that process and are really excited about this announcement because we think it can help to not only raise our own ambition and kind of step the bar up for ourselves, but also help to inspire others, both the regulators as well as other folks in the industry to come with us and to say, we need to do more, we need to do better. And let's work together to make electrification happen.
3: Yeah, Sam, earlier, uh, Julia used the term ecosystem, which I love because I, I think it's really difficult to think about how EVs can impact society without thinking about the charging and the ecosystem and the, the grid ecosystem and, and all that. So, a couple questions one sort of more immediate and one longer term. Um, I'm trying to think about how commuters and and your typical Lyft users will view ride sharing uh, in a post COVID world. And I'm going to guess that they're going to view it as safer than traditional forms of mass transit, or at least they're going to be exposed to fewer individuals. And so have you thought about how to work with mass transit agencies or municipalities to better integrate you know, Lyft into the system and, and make sure that riders have the options that they need, that they feel safe with, and that they can get from point A to point B? But also, then, have you thought about how to integrate Lyft's EV fleet's charging needs with that of a transit agency? So, for example, if mass transit is going to start looking at electric buses as a solution to reduce air pollution, could you set up a network of fast chargers that would be strategically placed throughout a city or a municipality that would allow transit users to use lift vehicles when necessary, uh, but also allow buses to refuel at the same points or recharge at the same points that lift vehicles could and have sort of a comprehensive system where you're not supplementing mass transit, but you're just part of the larger ecosystem?
1: And yeah, that's a timely question because a lot of transit systems around the country are really hurting financially right now amid coronavirus with ridership way down. This has a lot to do with the lockdowns and public health concerns and not really a rideshare driven issue. Uh, But we know that transit is good for the environment. So I am curious to know how these different pieces could actually work together better coming out of the pandemic and as the economy recovers.
0: Lots of great questions in there. Maybe let's start with the um, transit side of things. That's something we actually think quite a lot about. The post-COVID situation, we think is a great opportunity to build back better, and building back better doesn't mean only eVs. it means be- becoming a better partner and a better piece of the transportation ecosystem, which absolutely must include transit. You know, I think it's no secret that the best way to move a lot of people around in a very you know with the least amount of carbon emissions is public transportation or or mass transit, whether that's buses or subways or, you know, what have you. Um, We're really excited about that because we already, before the whole COVID situation started, we had already uh, started integrating transit information into the Lyft app directly. So it can become almost a one-stop shop, you know, where you can say, all right, I'm trying to go from point A to point B. And let me see what my options are. Okay, sure. I could take a classic lift ride. I could take a shared ride. I could take, uh, oh, look, I could take transit. Here it is. It tells me the schedule. It tells me where to go. It tells me how much it costs. I could take a bike. I could take a scooter. So we want to make, you know, we've we really become a multimodal uh, transportation, you know, platform, and that allows us to help people make a choice that that is the best for them in that moment. And a lot of times that's going to not be getting in a car. And, and that's actually really important because the best way to drive down emissions first is to just not even be in a car in the first place. You need to get onto transit. You need to get onto a bike. You need to get onto a scooter.
1: Let's just note that that's trip. pretty crazy to hear you say as a rideshare company, but it's uh, fascinating that you're thinking along those lines.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, look, if, if we don't disrupt ourselves, someone's going to disrupt us. And we know that that's the most, you know, the least carbon intensive way to get around. we want to become the place that people go to when they have the need to travel exactly how they travel, we want to help them figure out in the best way that they can. And in many cases, that means getting out of a car. And And, and so we want to help people to do that. Now, there are some rides where you, you, you really can't get out of a car, right? If you're going to the airport with six suitcases, you're not going to get on a bike to do that. Um, if you have a big group, you know, uh, and you've got to get somewhere very urgently or something, right? You, you may need to get in a the car there. Or it's a very, very long distance, uh, or it's late at night when transit isn't running, let's say. So there, there are still going to be many cases where a car is needed, and we want to help to help people see the options that they have based upon when and where they're traveling. And and so for those rides that do need to be in a car, those are the ones that have to be electrified and that we think can help to catalyze this broader ecosystem uh, and to shift towards elect- electrification. But at the same time, we want those rides that need to be happening in cars to help to supplement or what we call sort of, or solve what we call the first mile, last mile problem of transit, where, you know, typically a transit, uh, you know, route can get you, you know, 99% of the way there. But that first mile before you get on the bus or the train, and the last mile after you get off the bus or the train, you don't have a good transit connection, you're sort of stuck. And so that actually is a deterrent for many people to use transit at all, even, you know, as insignificant as that might seem, that can be a very big deterrent to people. So we think that We're able to help to supplement that first mile, last mile problem. And that actually helps more people use transit than if they hadn't already, or or if they weren't already using it. As, you know, as a result of trying to solve that problem, we've actually negotiated partnerships with, I think it's almost, I think it's over 80 different transit agencies in the U.S. as of today, where we are helping them to, uh, supplement their eco, their transit ecosystem to give better access to their trunk lines from outlying areas that would be inefficiently served by you know, an empty bus that's traveling around all day with nobody in it, we can get that one or two or three people to the trunk line in a much more cost-effective way and actually help more people come onto the transit system than would otherwise be able to.
1: Interesting. I mean, that's funny, because that's actually how I use Lyft a lot, is I take it to the Santa Monica train station to go all the way downtown. And so interesting that you're actually connecting up with agencies on that. What does that look like? I know, I know Shane asked a question about charging, but quickly, what does that look like when you partner with these agencies? What does that result in for the user?
0: Great question, Shane, we promise we will get to the other question about charging um, in a sec. So let me use an example that's actually kind of near where, where you're all based in Monrovia, California. We have a partnership with, um, I think it's called the Go Monrovia program where essentially we are helping to helping the agency basically operate more efficiently, right? So there's these sort of more outlying areas, more suburban areas or or exurban areas where um, buses that were traveling those routes were almost always empty. And what we've been able to do is to have the transit agency pay for um a subsidized lift ride for somebody who's in one of those outlying areas and i th- i th- i want to say that the stops the, the places you get picked up are the same kind of as the as the former bus stops and then it brings you from there back to the main system so that way you know it costs significantly less for the transit agency to send you know to go get that that one person or those two or three people per day who need it bring them into the transit system and then they can stop running that very inefficient bus routes so they actually save money while at the same time bringing more people into their transportation ecosystem.
1: Got it. Well, did a bit of a deep dive there on how Lyft would interact with other modes of transit. But I think, Shane, you raised that interesting question about how Lyft and other ride sharing services could partner with public transit on the EV infrastructure piece. Do you want to just reiterate that question?
3: Sam, so just from a practical perspective, if Lyft is successful in deploying a hundred percent EV fleet and, and frankly, you know, some transit agencies are trying to make their buses uh EVs as well. Um, have you guys thought about working with transit agencies, not just as you have in the planning phase now for how to get people from point A to point B? But to make sure that charging infrastructure is available throughout the cities or or exurbs or the areas that you're operating in so that your drivers can actually do all the things they need to do and get from point A to point B without having to go far out of the way to charge. Do you think that municipalities you've worked with think about that charging infrastructure as part of their responsibility if they want fewer transportation related emissions in in their communities?
0: I think you're absolutely right that charging is sort of the chicken to the EV egg. We we absolutely need a lot more charging available, not just for ride sharing, which remember is only, you know, one or 2% of, of vehicle miles traveled on the road today, but we need a lot more charging if everybody, both people are driving their own cars and, and buses and trains and everything to become electrified. So, how do we do this? Um, I think there's a few ways that we're we're working on it already, and I think there's a lot more that we have to do. So we've already signed partnerships with both Electrify America and EVgo Go to help provide uh, access to charging through their networks in the cities um, where we so far have deployed our uh, rental EV rental program through ExpressDrive. Now that's just a very very first step, and we think that. You know, those partnerships will clearly need to be expanded and there are probably many others in the ecosystem need to be brought into the conversation as well so that we can ultimately be providing uh, more ubiquitous charging, really have more charging be built and work on the pricing and and make sure that it's, you know, responsive to grid needs and all that fun, wonky stuff that we can can get into. Um, But, you know, some of those partners, yes, do probably do need to be transportation agencies and local governments. Right. They control the permitting for where charging stations can go. They have their, you know, local emissions reduction goals, for example. So I think everybody has to be part of this conversation. We have to work together to figure out where is the charging needed, both by ride sharing and other uses. Um, and then how do we streamline the permitting? How do we work with the local utility to build, you know, the back end, uh, you know, grid, a piece of the grid up to where the charging goes, et cetera, et cetera. So I think this all needs to be figured out. We don't. We don't know exactly how it will work but it's going to require lots of conversations lots of partnerships lots of collaboration um all up and down you know the country to make this happen
1: well you mentioned getting wonky so i wanted to touch on that quickly because uh this time last year i think it was i was covering a piece for green tech media uh with some EVgo go data talking about how rideshare services like lyft and uber were offering more evs boosting the need for charging But that Evigo had data showing that the charging was actually happening at times that would benefit the California grid, specifically during these curtailment hours when solar is really shining and it can't all be used in the middle of the day. Um, And it happened to be that that that's when these drivers would be plugging in because they'd be getting ready for the evening rush, say. Um, That was a year ago. Uh, Do you have any more data to back that up? Or what are the charging patterns and how could they possibly benefit the grid?
0: That's my understanding as well, and I, I remember seeing that uh, that EVgo study that you referenced. You know, essentially, you're right. The, the busiest times when rideshare is happening is the morning commute and the evening commute. You know, obviously, not during COVID when people are working from home, but um, but normally that is the case, and and that's exactly right. What it means is that in a place that has a lot of solar production, like California or you know, Sunbelt states or wherever it might be the when when the drivers are kind of taking their break um in between the morning and the evening commutes that would be a natural time to to charge and that is when solar production can be the highest or or is the highest so it there is i would say a, a nice kind of synergy there between when charging might need to happen and when there may be excess solar that would otherwise be curtailed um i think we need to get to you know much higher penetrations of evs before they were you know be a big dent, noticeable in in the belly of the duck curve, so to speak. But, um, but yes, I think that if we are able to get to where we are trying to go here, and we can catalyze a broader shift in the entire transportation ecosystem, then I think absolutely that was, is a very important effect that will help to make renewable energy even better for the electricity grid.
2: Sam, just to build on that a little bit, uh, you're, you're talking about charging. That's you know providing electricity uh, from the charger to the to the vehicle. Are you thinking about going the other way, where the battery in the EV can supply power to the grid at certain times, and the customer could be paid for that? That's what they're calling vehicle-to-grid, where the the EV can be uh, an asset to the grid, and could there be economics there that make it easier um, you know, to cover the cost of switching to an EV, are you thinking about how to develop that that um, vehicle to grid market? Because you would have a fleet of EVs that might be able to serve as a grid asset.
0: It's a great question. It's something that certainly has popped into our minds. Uh, we don't know yet if and how that would work. It's very it's it's intriguing, certainly. And it could even maybe be an extra, you know, piece of driver earnings if they want, if, if a driver individually decides they want to, you know, use some of their battery to support the electricity grid and, and get paid for that by the, the ISO, then that could be a really interesting thing that a driver could choose to do. I think it's something we definitely want to think more about as we see penetration of EVs increasing over time. I think immediately, you know, today when, when the amount of EVs is still relatively small, we need to focus our main efforts on, you know, getting the right policies in places, getting the right charging partnerships in places, getting the right auto manufacturer partnerships in place so that we can help people to be able to start, uh, electrifying the, the cars that are, they're driving. Um, and I'm excited to get to that next phase that you're talking about because there's all sorts of really cool and, and super wonky and nerdy things that we, we get to think about when we get there. And, uh, and it's going to be fun to, to figure it out.
1: Yeah, those new applications are interesting, but the getting there piece you mentioned is really interesting to me because I know that people who own EVs love them and uh, to them it's so obvious that you would have one, but the reality is that here in the US anyway, passenger EV adoption has been pretty slow. Tesla's been doing well, but last year if you removed Tesla, there was actually little to no EV growth among all the other automakers, so so, to put a finer point on it, Sam, what do you think Lyft can do to get individual drivers excited about going electric in a way that maybe hasn't been done yet?
0: I think for drivers, you know let's take a step back why Why are they driving? Well, you know the vast majority of the drivers on the platform are people who are you know using the couple of extra hours they have between you know dropping the kids off at school and you know going to their appointment in the afternoon or something to make some extra money and help put food on the table and, and, and all the rest. So wh- what I'm trying to say is it really comes down to making money, right? That's why people are doing this. And we want to help them make even more money than they would if they were going to continue to drive a gasoline vehicle. You know, remember, an EV um, has, in most places today, and this will, we think, become increasingly true in the future, its fueling costs are lower because in most places, electricity Buying electricity for your EV is cheaper than gasoline. That's not always true, but in most cases it is. And there are also lower maintenance costs. An EV has um, many, many fewer moving parts than a gasoline car. And as a result, it just simply breaks down less, doesn't need as much maintenance. So there are lower costs to the driver for driving an EV. The, The big barrier I would say today is the upfront cost, right? It still costs, you know, many thousands of dollars more to get an EV in the first place, even if over time those fuel and maintenance savings can kind of pay you back for that upfront cost, it's still a pretty hard, you know, initial payment for somebody to make. Um, And so I think the key is to, to both, you know, help to spur demand, right? The more demand there is, the more supply can get produced and the more costs can come down. This is just the whole concept of the cost curve, supply and demand. So that's one thing I think if we can just harness the large number of e- of drivers that are on the platform and we can kind of aggregate their demand we can show a signal to the suppliers of cars to say hey there is a lot of demand for this or there's going to be now you have a signal so go figure out how to drive more cost out of your manufacturing process and bring that cost down and if we can p- compare that with good policy to help further bring that cost down we think we can make it so compelling that a driver would say okay I can get behind this because now I see that I'm going to be making more money than I would if I had just stuck with my old gasoline car. So it sort of becomes a no brainer. That's 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 the hard work that we need to do if we're going to really be able to succeed in this commitment.
1: I was in Detroit at the General Motors big EV Day event earlier this year, where GM was unveiling its new Ultium battery pack technology and teased several new EV models. And while I was there, I had the chance to catch up with Chelsea Sexton, who was on the original GM EV1 team and continues to write and advocate for EVs. And she made the point to me that decent vehicles have never really been the problem for EV adoption, they've all been solid, you know, the Volt and the Bolt, for instance good cars all around with some new technologies packed in. But the success and the failure, she says, comes down to the mushier stuff. Things like having a launch strategy, creative marketing, making a simple economic case, and having good salespeople at the dealership. So uh, just all that to say, I find it interesting to think about how Lyft is thinking about these like mushier pieces and the strategy in addition to just the goals. There's also
2: a lot more models coming out. I mean, Mm-hmm. Recently, you really your choices were Tesla, Leaf, Bolt. You know, not that much. Now, in the next two years, there's going to be, you know, dozens of new you know models on the market. Shane, do you think we can get some Republicans on board for like a cash for clunkers? You know, where they could partner with Lyft and other you know ride-sharing companies to swap out these old polluting cars for
3: EVs. You know, I I don't know. We've talked about that a lot and I've been trying to think about, you know, how you would pursue a policy like that in a way that is like clearly, you know, bipartisan and no one feels like you're trying to sneak, quote unquote, you know, sneak something into something else, but maybe focusing on EVs and also, you know, domestic content requirements or something like that, where you can credibly make the argument that you're trying to not just, you know, protect the environment and clean the air, but also, Uh, stimulate sales of products that are going to be made or mostly made or assembled in the U S at a time when, you know, we have a lot of, of blue collar labor and a lot of our factories um, either not doing well, just because of of global macroeconomic circumstances or also because of recent COVID related shutdowns and, and people needing to get back to work. So that's kind of a dodge, but it's not intended to be. I was just trying to think of how you would package such a proposal in a way that you accomplish what everyone wants, Republicans are going to say they just want to get people back to work asap. Um, so hopefully, they can support something that would get them back to work in a way that also reduces auto emissions.
1: Yeah, Sam, are you guys thinking about? Um, are you thinking about this move at all as part of a COVID recovery? Does that kind of factor into your thinking?
0: Yeah, the idea is we can come out of this. Let me back up. If we can come out of this and try to achieve multiple goals at once, that just basically seems like the right thing to do. We want to come back, build back our economy, bring jobs back, bring manufacturing back, and while we're at it, do the work to solve climate change at the same time. So if we can do things like Shane is suggesting, where we can increase manufacturing, where we can take back technological leadership um, and get ahead of companies or, or of countries like China and, and certain European countries who seem to be sort of leapfrogging ahead of us in a lot of respects, I think we can make a really compelling case that this is good for people. It's good for jobs, it's good for the economy, good for the environment. You know, why wouldn't we want to live in that world? It sounds pretty good to me.
1: And yeah, just a flag for our audience that we had Representative Debbie Dingell on as well as James Chen at the automaker Rivian talking about very similar things, how they're trying to seize this moment to Yeah, have the U.S. automakers really uh, dominate and have the product out in the market, both here and abroad. So uh, flagging that for anyone who wants to listen and learn more. Uh, A couple of final questions for you, Sam. Um, The Environmental Defense Fund, I believe you are partnering with and trying to achieve this 100 percent EV target by 2030, as well as uh, EV100, a, a coalition that Lyft has joined. Quickly touch on how they will help you reach this goal.
0: Definitely. Well, we've had a, a partnership with with the Environmental Defense Fund, EDF, for for some time. Uh, they've helped to advise us on various aspects of our environmental programs, and um, here they really played a big role in helping us to figure this out and kind of, in, in a way, um, help advise us on on what are all the pieces of this plan going to need to be. I mean, I think you know the aspiration is this bold statement that we're going to go for one hundred percent. We're making a commitment. Um, It's very exciting, but really, you know, there's, there have to be a lot of details and a lot of thinking behind that statement because it's not an easy problem. And if it was, it would have been solved already. So again, we're doing this because it's hard and we're working with experts like our, our friends at Environmental Defense Fund who have been helping us to really think through, okay, how do you, you know, work with auto manufacturers? How do you work with charging providers? What are the policies that, may need to be put in place. And how do you best go about advocating for those um, and bring the sort of expertise of the environmental community to help to make this happen? So we're, we're very excited to work with them. EV100, as as many folks probably know, is kind of the flagship uh, business initiative organized by the Climate Group out of the UK, where forward-looking companies who Uh, are on board for the goal of 100% uh, EVs have come together to sort of declare that this is what they're going to do, this is what they're going to commit to, and then work together to bring about the changes um, that need to happen across the whole ecosystem to make that happen. So we're joining EV100 as well, very proudly, and that we think that's going to help us to kind of kickstart our efforts in a big way.
1: So to pull a few different pieces together here, can you explain what Lyft is is. Obviously, it's a ride-sharing company and you do carpooling, but now Lyft is also this multimodal transit service, as you discussed, and you're taking a more active role in EV policy making. So what does this all say about the company's grand vision and really what kind of company Lyft is and wants to be?
0: You know, I would go back maybe to sort of the vision of our, of our founders, John Zimmer and Logan Green, who really, I think, have been working towards a future vision and, and bringing the company towards that future vision of cities and communities that are redesigned around people rather than cars we want to help to bring the public space back to people so that we can get cars off the road so that we can get rid of so many parking spaces and use that curb space for something more productive or just more interesting like you know, restaurants and street life for example that sounds a lot more fun to me than just a bunch of parked cars so i think what we're trying to do here is become both at the same time kind of become a one-stop shop for people who want to get from a to b and who want to know what's the what's the best option for me in in my particular circumstances right now and while we do that we think we can uh work with the communities where where we operate to help to bring that public space back to people and, uh, and and take it back from kind of the car infrastructure that has unfortunately just proliferated so much around cities.
3: Sam, I, I want to dig a tiny bit deeper on that because if my understanding of, of Lyft five years ago, I, I, maybe not five years ago, a few years ago, would have been that you're a car company, uh, a company that is, is basically a car service, so why would you ever want cars off the road? But you've used the word platform several times. So can you just give us, your in your own words, what is Lyft? Is it a transportation company? Is it a user to user platform to help people find better solutions? Is it a tech company? What specifically is Lyft? If you had to define its genre as a company,
0: well, I suppose I mean the official designation, regulatorily is that we are a transportation network company and or a TNC, and uh, I think in a way that sort of captures it that it's it's a person to person. Technology platform that connects people who want to go somewhere with somebody who has the ability to take you there. And that was, that was the original. That's what Lyft started as when it was just, you know, ride sharing with, with one person and one driver and one car. Since that time, we've really expanded our horizons and we've become a multimodal technology platform. And now we have the ability to connect people who want to go somewhere with not just someone with a car who wants to take them but with a bike, with a scooter, with the city bus or the metro or whatever it might be. So I think the word network is key here, right? In transportation network company, it's a network of people and vehicles and devices, and they're all coming together on a technology platform that helps to make it all happen.
1: I have just one final question, which is timely, I think, but we have to also note that it's not your area of expertise, Sam. But I'm curious if you can speak at all to how Lyft is trying to bring more diversity into its pool of drivers and making sure that, you know, all drivers of all races, of all income levels can really benefit from the platform and just making sure that's at the core of what you do. And it doesn't become, um, you know, limited as to who can really work on the platform and benefit from it going forward, which is, I think, you know, inequalities in our society writ large have just been under the spotlight lately. So I'm curious how you guys are thinking about that.
0: It's a great question. So maybe I can provide a couple of pieces of information. We we put out an annual um, economic impact report, which if folks are curious you can go to liftimpact.com and see all the really detailed information there, but a couple of stats that I want to pull out for you are um first of all, 66% of our drivers identify with a minority community. Um so already, you know, I think we we have been, we have more work to do obviously, but we have been um we have been a platform that has invited people from all backgrounds, um, all communities to participate, whether as a rider or a driver. Um, additionally, you know, 40% of the rides that are provided through the platform either start or end in a low income uh, area or low income neighborhood. So in that way uh, we are providing transportation services or helping to connect people to transportation services that uh, they may not otherwise have, you know, many of not in all cases, but in, in many cases, those communities can be or, or or have been kind of transportation deserts that there just aren't very many options. And so people don't have the ability to get around and 40% of our rides are starting or ending in those areas. So we're helping people to connect to transportation in a way that they may not have been able to do before.
1: That's helpful. Thanks. Well, I think that's where we'll leave our interview on Lyft's new EV announcement. Uh, but if you have a moment, Sam, we're going to task you with our final segment, which is our Say Something Nice segment, where our Democrat and Republican say something redeeming about the opposing party. And if you have an idea you want to throw in the ring, that'd be great. Brandon, we'll go to you first to kick us off for this final segment of our show.
2: Mine's a little bit of a uh, of a stretch today. The Wall Street Journal published uh, a, an op-ed, so... I, I guess that's kind of conservative, right? Because the Wall Street Journal is like considered a conservative publication. More so, yeah. The yeah. editorial team is uh, probably conservative. Um, and the op-ed was published on Friday and it said um, it's the title is it's not too late to save the 2020 election. And what it's about is nine things that we could do as a country to ensure a safe and fair electoral process in november because if you look at what's been happening wisconsin was a disaster last week georgia was a disaster people standing in line for hours and hours and hours machines not working you know right now joe biden's leading in the polls but if that comes back a few points uh, then this thing could come down to a few thousand votes in either wisconsin or arizona And so I'm really concerned that we're going to, whether we're going to have a safe and fair election that is going to stand up in a peaceful transfer transfer of power. And so I thought this article was one of the best things I've read in a long time. Very simple nine steps that we need to do to preserve like the foundation of our democracy, which is a safe election.
1: Is that the headline of it? Nine steps to save our democracy?
2: It's the headline is, it's not too late to save the 2020 election. It's written by a Stanford law professor. And there are things that should be bipartisan. All of the nine steps are things that we should be we should agree on as Americans.
1: Got it. Shane, do you have one?
3: I'm actually glad Brandon went a little bit rogue because mine is also not, you know, traditional in the sense of, hey, I like, you know, Senator so-and-so because this bill is fantastic um but mine is about Brian Stevenson who is um an author a lawyer um someone who's fought for civil rights and, and equal justice and the reason for that is that I recently watched the movie Just Mercy which um is about his experience as a young lawyer in Montgomery Alabama and for people like me people who grew up um in white suburbs it's just very difficult for anyone to tell me, you know, that things can be difficult in black areas or, or more difficult for for black kids and, and all that sort of stuff. It's hard to understand that because you haven't experienced it. So I really enjoy storytelling. I like films. I like music. I like things where people can use a format that they're very talented in uh, to try to help you feel something or see something different than what you've experienced in your life. That movie, it, it makes you cringe if you're a human being who just wants other people all people to be treated fairly it makes you feel it in a way that maybe a discussion with a colleague couldn't so for this particular you know moment in time um i just found his life really interesting when after watching the movie and reading up about him and stuff like that so I thought that was something worth sharing
1: great sam do you want to do you have one you can share with us
0: sure I mean maybe i'll uh, be a little less rogue and, and bring, bring it back to kind of climate related <laughs> questions but um You know, I take a lot of heart in things like the Climate Leadership Council, which is a bipartisan group who have put forth a climate plan that, you know, takes into account free market principles and environmental principles and kind of is really trying to bridge the divide and and bring everybody together to solve this problem. So, you know, I personally applaud efforts like that and and we want to work with everybody and anybody. Uh, to solve this problem. And and we think that if we do, we can really make a big difference.
1: Fantastic. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Great to chat with you all. Thank you, Sam.
2: Sam.
1: As a follow-up, co-founder and president of Lyft, John Zimmer, did not give a definitive answer on a press call Wednesday when asked if Lyft would bar drivers using gasoline vehicles from using its platform starting in 2030. Instead, he said it's simply incumbent on Lyft to make driving an EV so much more compelling. He also noted that Lyft could be collaborating with automakers to make an EV that's designed specifically for ride sharing. So that could be an interesting one to watch. Thanks so much for listening. And again, if you have a moment, we'd love it if you could rate and review Political Climate on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen. We're available on pretty much all of the listening platforms. We're also on Twitter at P-O-L-I underscore climate. So feel free to reach out to us there. We always love that. And that's all for now. Thanks again and until next week.